morning. Yeah, it's good to be with you and be able to open up God's Word together. <clears throat> well, it's commonly said that we are to learn from our failures. Maybe you have things that you've learned from in your life, failures that you have made, and you were like, well, I won't make that mistake again. I'll say it is good to learn from your failures, but it's even better to learn from the failures of someone else, right? So that you don't have to make the same mistake. Well, this whole text is couched in Peter's failure, isn't it? In the beginning and the end, it's bookend with Peter. And uh, in the middle, we find our Savior, right? We see our Savior being faithful, faithful to the will of God, confident in the will of God, steadfast to the will of God, even as we're going to see that Jesus faces truly unjust treatment. Peter, on the other hand, we will see is going to fall woefully short, isn't he? He's going to fall short of his own expectations for himself. Maybe you have set expectations for yourself at times and said, hey, I will be this, I will do this, only to find that you fell woefully short. Well, Peter had told the Lord that he would never fall away. He would never deny him. In fact, he'd be willing to die if necessary. Well, what we're going to see here is that Peter doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't uphold his word. He does exactly what Jesus said he would do. He would deny him, deny him three times. He would deny him, and he would fall away. But even in this, we, we note that Peter's failure is, is not the same as Judas, one of the other disciples. Peter's failure will end in him weeping bitterly. But we will know that Peter has wept and he has had sorrow of a godly sort that leads to repentance and leads to his own restoration. Well, most of us at some point or, the, or another will or have experienced uh, the tension that is brewing in our world, a world that it's increasingly finding Christianity intolerable unacceptable, that Christian values are uh, antithetical to the values of our society, if you will. And the truth is that many of you are on the front lines. Many of you are going into the workplaces, into the school, into the university contexts, and you are experiencing and, or maybe feeling the tensions that are brewing. Maybe it's a conversation uh, in the workplace, uh, where issues of the day are occurring, and you, and maybe you even hear of people talking about Christians in a way that that you are feeling that awkward moment, like, do they they know that I'm one of them, <laughs> and that I am a Christian, or maybe that fear or anxiety? I hope they don't ask me what I think about X. Because then I'm going to have to show my cards. Maybe you felt that way before. And so the question for us, as we are, are entering a world that is increasingly post-Christian, increasingly wanting to uh, shed itself of any Christian influence possible, 
The question for us is how do we remain steadfast to our Lord? How do we remain steadfast to the Lord and not deny Him before others, right? We don't want to make the same mistake that Peter has made. How do we keep ourselves from making that error? How do we keep ourselves from being overconfident in our own abilities to endure trials and temptations when they come? Well, fortunately, the Word of God does not leave us to ourselves. In fact, the Word of God never leaves us to ourselves. The Word of God never calls us to look to ourselves, but actually to look to Christ. And here, we not only look to Christ as the positive example, but we're going to learn from a negative example as well in Peter's failure. In fact, Peter tells us to learn from his error. We know that Peter has been restored, that he's been strengthened, and it is from his failure that actually he can point believers to the example of Christ, the example that he did not follow. Brother Jim read for us from 1 Peter chapter 2, but I want to draw our attention again to this exhortation that Peter had. And in a sense today, while we are looking at Matthew's account. I can't help but just think of Peter on the other side of this event, talking to us and giving us advice, giving us exhortation to look to Jesus. And I'm mindful of what Peter writes to the church in 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me draw your attention to it again. Peter says, if or when you do good, you suffer for it and endure This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Have you ever thought about that? It is a gracious thing in God's sight if I suffer for doing good? Yeah. Let me tell you why. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Can't help that Peter, as we will see, is watching this initial trial. He's watching things from afar. And though he failed, though he did not heed this advice that he gives, he's giving it out of his own failure, isn't he? So that we would not follow his footsteps but that we would follow the footsteps of Christ in the face of trial, in the face of temptation, in the face of suffering for bearing the name of Christ. And so this morning, I want us to consider, as we learn to live in a world that is uncomfortable at best with Christianity, and it's increasingly becoming less comfortable It's my prayer that we would not respond by reviling, threatening. Oh, we would follow the example of Christ who did not revile and did not threaten in return. That we would learn how to endure when we're mistreated for Christ. Or how to endure and boldly profess Christ in a sweet, gentle, attractive way. By entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. That we would follow Christ's example here in this text. As he has left us. And if we're going to do that, we need to learn from Peter's failure. 
And I think what Peter would say, if, if you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to remain steadfast, you need to stay close to him. You need to stay as close to Jesus as you possibly can. And staying close to Jesus is precisely the challenge, isn't it, when suffering comes, when trials come, when the, the temperature begins to increase, when temptation begins to breathe down your neck. It's precisely in these times that, I, that we'll often say, hey, I, I just need a break for a little bit, right? Hey, you know, I'm just going to withdraw from church and the fellowship of the saints. I just need a little time to get my life together. Oftentimes, there, there are people ministering, and they're, they're sporadic. They're, they're here for a season, and they go. And, and often, I'll say, where have you been? Oh, my life is filled with so much trouble, and I'm trying to get it worked out before I come back. And, and I'm like, you have it backwards. You think you can, you can face these trials and temptations in your own strength. But Jesus says, no, come to me. Stay close to me. And yet we're all faced with that temptation that breeds into our heart. And we're tempted to think, I can keep a safe distance from Jesus. I can be close enough that, that I don't betray him, that I'm being faithful. But maybe I can escape the suffering that's associated with him. That's what Peter tries to do here in our text as he's watching Jesus be led to Caiaphas and the high priest and the other religious leaders for this trial. And I know Peter's getting beaten up here in this text. Matthew, some people think, does Matthew like Peter? Because <laughs> he's the only one he highlights. He's just like, Peter, yeah, let's let this fool talk. And then we'll just trot out his story before the rest of the church for the next two millennia. You know, it is, it is, it is Peter, but I, wanna, I want you to see... We see ourselves in Peter. Peter's, Peter's trying, but he's forgotten what Jesus has told him. The Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter's trying. He's just trying in the flesh. And he's conflicted because no doubt in the back of his mind, he knows what's going on. This, this trauma of, of the soldiers coming and, and arresting Jesus has certainly shaken up their life. And no doubt he remembers how just hours ago he told Jesus, I'll die with you. I'll never betray you. And where we were left is, is Jesus being hauled off and all the disciples left him and fled. Well, Matthew comes to, to Peter. And what we see, verse 58, and Peter was following him, notice, at a distance. At a distance. Have you ever found yourself saying, I won't be tempted by that? Oh, I, 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 can, I can keep myself in this sphere because I, I'm strong enough to endure that temptation. I'll never commit that type of sin. That, that really just doesn't, that never gets to me. Those, those trials aren't uh, um, things that I struggle with, only to then find yourself struggling with a sin you never thought you would struggle with. Or maybe even have committed a sin that you never thought that you would commit. This is what's happened to Peter. And he doesn't want to be a complete failure. So he follows Jesus, but he follows him at a distance. 
and goes no further, we see, than the courtyard of the high priest. So, so think of this royal palace of such, and, and he's out in the courtyard. John's gospel lets us know that John actually had some means, and, uh, and John was a, a little bit more affluent, had some contacts, and John's there too, but we're only focusing on Peter. And I think sometimes we can be like Peter and we can begin to think that we can uphold our commitment to Christ in the world, but we can keep a safe distance. We, we can keep enough space uh, that we may not bear the stigma of Christ and his sufferings. We, we don't want to allow ourselves to get too close. We might actually be found to be thought of as fanatics or something, Right? One of the trends I see among Christians is the pressures begin to build. Maybe you're feeling these pressures. There's an embarrassment about what we find in the scriptures. An embarrassment about what Christ says about a sexual ethic. Embarrassed about what Christ says about gender roles. Or a high view of marriage in the church. And, and that's exactly where the pressures are, right? You, if that conversation's happening at work, you're like, I want to get away from that one, right? I don't, I don't want to tell them. And I'm not suggesting you go in there, well, let me tell you how it is. I'm not suggesting that, but we feel that tension. What if they ask me what I think? What will I say? What will I do? And I, and I think many of us are trying our best to find some mediating position. Maybe, maybe we can, on the outside, not look like we take this so seriously, that they won't out us, that, that we won't be found to be whatever they think of us, that, that we'll be more acceptable, palatable to the world, and, and I can still hold on to my Christian teaching in general, but I don't have to hold on to it in the specifics. Somehow I can escape. I can, I can follow him at a safe distance. It's in this vein that Martin Luther writes about conflict in the world. and He writes this, the great reformer. He says, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefields besides that one, is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. I think sometimes we feel that pressure. Oh, okay, I'm going to be faithful to something else right now because that's where the battle's not raging. And like Peter, we think, I can just play it safe. I can keep a safe distance from the scriptures and, and, and what Christ has taught. But as Peter will soon learn by his own experience, his flesh is weak. He's overestimated the threat, and he's underestimated his ability to face it. He thought he could control it. He thought he could, he could somehow weave the needle, and I think he would say, no, no, the mistake I made is that I thought I could follow Jesus at a distance, and I should have been right there with him. And we, too, need to be as close as Jesus as we can. Because here's the reality, the strength to follow him does not reside in us. That's the mistake we make. We think that we can, somehow we got enough of the goods right here, that I can follow Jesus on my own strength. 
and I don't have to be near him. But it's only, brothers and sisters, when we are strengthened by the grace which is in Christ Jesus that we can even imitate him. We have to be close to him if we are going to imitate him. We have to know Jesus if we're going to follow him. And that's exactly what Peter would, would exhort us to do. I was, I was distant, I was far off, but, but I would encourage you to stay close to him so you may follow in his footsteps. That's what he writes to the church, doesn't he? He has left us an example that we may follow in his steps. And so secondly, we want to imitate Jesus. Out of a communion with him, out of a knowledge of him, out of, out of, of relationship with him, and knowing him, and, and sitting at his feet, and, and being close to him, we now know, how would I respond, Jesus, and follow your footsteps? Well, Peter, reflecting on his own experience, reminds us that we too have been called to suffer. Why? Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Did you realize that, that part of being a Christian is that you've been called to suffer? That in some measure, as you're following Christ, you're, you're going to experience the same things that he experienced at some level. And what example has he left us? Well, we see it here. Jesus endures here the most unjust trial, unjust sentencing, unjust treatment than any person on the face of the planet and so, in doing so, Christ both eliminates any excuse on our part to say, well, my circumstance is unique. It calls for a different course of action. It eliminates that. Because none of us have experienced the same injustice that Christ has here. But on the other side, and more on the positive side, it reminds us that Christ sympathizes in our weaknesses. Because he has faced the very things that you have faced. He's faced it in a far greater manner. And so he can sympathize with you. But what did Jesus do in the face of this trial? Well, we see Jesus, as we consider his example, when reviled, he did not revile in return, did he? He did not revile in return, but he remained silent. Jesus shows here that he is truly the lamb, the suffering servant, who like a sheep who is led before it shears is silent, so not he opened up his mouth. He doesn't. And what becomes evident in this trial is that it's corrupt from the outset. Do you see that? Look in verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus. Why? That they might put him to death. Do you see? They already have the outcome set. This trial is a sham, Right? We've got to put him to death, so we need to find false witnesses that will testify to something that is worthy of death. Kind of crazy, huh? The system is corrupt. This is a truly unjust system. It would do us well to see how Jesus fights unjust systems when he is at the brunt of it and being oppressed by it. So they look for false witnesses, and Matthew says that, that many came forward, and they found none. Well, how did you have many come forward, but you found none? Uh, what's he saying here? 
other gospel writers help us clear this up, is that they had plenty of people willing to testify. Can you, can you come? Who knows how they were seating it, but they were some sense trying to guard some integrity so they could at least say, hey, we had these people come and bear witness, but we find out that, that none of them had um, agreeable stories. They had conflicting reports. And so none of these are going to work. We've got to have, uh, if we're going to obey the Bible, which is what they're, the sham is all about, we got to have two witnesses. We just need two. Forget the or three. Just two. All right? If we get two to say the same thing, they couldn't. Until the end, Matthew says, finally, and at last, two came forward. And they had what they needed. Hey, this will work. We can run with this accusation. And here was the accusation. They said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. That was it. Now, certainly Jesus had talked a lot about the temple. We, we've just spent some time out of Matthew 24 and 25 where where Jesus is walking and the disciples are, are looking and, and he says, I tell you, not one stone is going to be left upon another. And and that's kind of like walking through the airport these days and someone looking at the planes. Yeah, they're all going to blow up. You know, you say something like that, you're going down. You're, that's not acceptable. Um, but it really isn't the heart of what Jesus was trying to say. They had misunderstood it. A, a, a closer uh, maybe phrase that Jesus said comes in John 2 where he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three Days, But John lets us know that he wasn't talking about the physical temple. He's talking about the temple of his body. And it seems that they have misunderstood what he said, or they have now twisted what he has said. Yet, notice Jesus remains silent. Why? One, he knows. It doesn't matter. The verdict's already been set. Death is what they want. It's going to happen. This trial is not about finding the truth, but producing his death. And if you're like me, my instincts would be, well, if I'm going down, I'm going down swinging, right? If it's already certain I'm deaf, might as well take some, some guys with me. I'd be like, Peter, well, we're going down. Pull out my sword. But he remains silent in his innocence. And what we see here is that he's not reviling in return. He, he's not fighting. He's not a threat. And sometimes we think when we're suffering, we need to let everybody know we're a threat and someone not to mess with. That's not the way of Christ. And this silence enrages Caiaphas, doesn't it? Verse 62, and the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? I mean, he's frustrated. We've got two people saying that you're going to hear, you're terrorists to, to destroy the temple. Are you, aren't you going to talk? Jesus just sits there silent. What is it? Is this, is this true or not? I imagine like an interrogation scene of two police officers. I've watched enough Dateline. Doesn't matter who they are bringing to interrogate, they've got you, right? They've got you. We've got evidence of you. To get them to talk. This is their photos. We've got you here. See, that's you, isn't it? 
Confess it. And the more they're silent, the more aggravated they get. Well, that's Caiaphas. Jesus remains silent. He doesn't fight the charges. So Caiaphas has to do something to really get Jesus to speak. And so he he invokes an oath. He he, he adjures him by the, the name of the living God. And he demands that Jesus answer the question. And he knows that by invoking this oath, Jesus has to respond according to the law. And he gets down to this question, tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? This question might seem, how do we get from destroying temples to are you the Christ, the Son of God? Where do those things come up? Well, actually, it was the Christ who has authority over the temple and it was the Christ who was to come and purify the temple and rebuild the temple. And so they understood uh, the significance of Jesus' saying here. And so Caiaphas says, stop messing around with us and tell us the truth. Speak up. Are you willing to own these claims? And you can see here, imagine if you're here. Are you a Christian or are you not? Do you worship Jesus or do you not? Do you believe these scriptures or do you not? Do you go to that church or do you not? This is the moment of truth. This is that moment where I confess I'm with Christ or I don't. And for Jesus, if he denies it, guess what? He walks. No, I'm not a Christ. I'm not here to destroy the temple. I'm out. And he walks. It's over. But if he affirms it, certain death. And Jesus doesn't deceive, but he speaks the truth, doesn't he? In the moment, he sticks with the truth, and he replies to Caiaphas, he says, you have said so. You have said so. And may wonder, why, why did Jesus just say yes? Why didn't he just come out? He is, but he's being careful with his words because what Caiaphas means by this, are you the Christ, the Son of God, is is not exactly the same as what Jesus means. See, in Caiaphas' mind, Jesus is a nationalist. He's a zealot. We might call him an insurrectionist or something like that. Here to overturn the political structures. But Jesus is claiming to be a Messiah who will suffer on behalf of his people. And Caiaphas doesn't know that. And this is where I think we need to be careful as well. Many people, when they are interested, are are you a Christian? You know what they think? You're wanting to overturn everything. That that's what you're really about. They, They have a misunderstanding. And so the way we respond actually needs to show how we are no threat. We're no threat to you. We're not in the business of overcoming or overturning governments. We're in the business of bearing witness to Jesus. And so, thirdly, here we see that Jesus doesn't retaliate, but trusts God. He trusts God. Verse 64, he says, I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus getting at 
Jesus is uh, quoting from Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, which are the exaltation passages of the Messiah. And notice he says, from now on, he's saying, in the future. That's basically what he's saying. Right now, you don't understand what I'm here to do. I'm here to suffer and die. I'm here to lay down my life for others. But in the future, you'll see. You'll see I'm the glorious Son of Man who's coming in the power of the Ancient of Days. See, Jesus is not going to ascend his throne or wield his power by asserting himself, but by denying himself. And Peter says, he's left us an example. He's left us an example. Jesus knows that the kingdom and his enthronement come through the cross. Do we realize that? Exaltation is on the other side of the cross. It's not exaltation and no cross. It's cross exaltation. And it's the same manner for us. This is the gospel. For it's only by laying down his life for us and and dying on the cross for us whereby he can atone for our sins as we have sung. We give thanks for the blood that washes us white. If Jesus doesn't go through the cross, there is no victory over sin. There is no victory over death. There is no victory over the powers of evil. And so it's in this way that that Jesus, you see here, he's trusting the promises of the Father. No, I will be exalted at the proper time. It's just not now. And so often what we want, I want to be exalted now. And so we reject suffering for Christ's sake. I don't deserve suffering, and so I'm not. And so we fight it. Or we fight so that it doesn't happen. We're working in every manner to make sure that we don't suffer, but yet we don't understand that we are following Christ who suffered and died. It doesn't mean we pursue suffering. Jesus doesn't do that either. But when it comes, Peter says it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. And you follow Jesus' example. Well, having said this, you know, everybody flips a lid in this scene. High priest tears his robes and he says, he's uttered blasphemy. We got him. What else do we need? Forget this whole temple business. He has done, he's just sit here in full confession. He claims to be the Christ. And he turns to the rest of the crew and he says, you have now heard this blasphemy. What's your judgment? Yeah, he deserves death. That's what that group is saying. Yep, he deserves to die. Done. Let's move it along. But Notice what happens. Then they spit in his face and struck him. Who's the they? Seems to be these religious leaders, the pastors of the day. The Bible scholars show their true intent. You know what? The the high priest is not allowed to tear his robes. This is all a sham. They're trying to get two witnesses so they can honor the Lord, but they are breaking the Lord's law every which way they're going. They're full of, of a sham. And they begin to spit in his face and, and strike him. And some, I mean some others, others came out and began to slap him 
Other gospel writers say they blindfold him and they slap him. Tell us who, if you're the Christ, prophesy. Tell us who's hitting you. And they're mocking him. What is Jesus doing? We already know, if I wanted to, I could call 72,000 angels right now. He has the power not only to stop it, but to wipe them out. He has the power, and he doesn't use it. What's he doing? He's doing lots of things, but one thing is we see here, he's leaving you an example that you too would entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Vengeance is the Lord, says I. I will repay. And we now trust the promises that if we're in Christ, we die to ourselves now. Knowing that on the day he comes, on the clouds of glory, we too will be exalted with him. We'll, we'll be glorified. We'll be resurrected. And it will be revealed to all that we are truly sons and daughters of God. And it's with this confidence, brothers and sisters, whereby we can then, okay, no matter what happens, if I claim Christ, the chances are this isn't going to happen to you. <laughs> At least for us, it is the case for many brothers and sisters around the world. But we only have to deal with servant girls like Peter. But even if we're going we're to prevail in those trials, are you one of them? Are you with Jesus? But well, we're going to have to be confident in his promises that exaltation happens after suffering. After suffering. We come now to Peter. We come now to the negative example again. We get to his three denials. And obviously we don't want to deny Jesus. We want to confess him, right? We don't want to be far from Jesus. We want to stay close to him. Why do we want to be close to him? So we can imitate him. And if we imitate him, just as Paul exhorted Timothy, who was, who, was, who was shrinking back, and he says, do not be ashamed of me and my chains or the testimony of our Lord. And he points them later in the letter. He says, be faithful as Christ who made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Christ was the good confessor. He, he, he could say, I am the Christ. Well, our confession is, I believe in the Christ. And I believe it's Jesus in confidence of God's promises. As we've watched Jesus confidently go to the cross, that we can confess Jesus. Well, we come back to Peter here in these final verses. And what has Peter done? Well, much like us, relied on our own strength, right? Relied on his own strength to, to follow Jesus. He rested in the flesh to face his trials and temptations rather than Staying close to him. And so it is with us, brothers and sisters, right? And all of us, the truth is, we, we can learn from Peter's failures, but we got plenty of our own to learn from, right? <laughs> plenty of our own. But it's when we rest in our own strength, in our own flesh, guess what? We stumble and fall, right? We can probably sit down, probably don't want to, but we could sit down before one another and we can say, yep, this is, this is my Peter moment. Numerous times probably have done it so many times that we've forgotten all of them. Jesus, in contrast, has been strengthened by his father, right? Where he's come out of much prayer time with him, where the disciples slept. And Peter was one of them and underestimated his need for God's grace to sustain him. And so now in the moment of trial and persecution, Peter is ashamed of Christ. 
Once the trial came, he was not ready. And so he denies them three times. And we see this first one is before a servant girl. A woman in this society has no standing. This is the most innocent, less fearful person you could possibly imagine coming forth. And Peter wilts, totally overwhelmed by the moment. Doesn't take much. She says, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. Maybe that would be the most scariest thing you could think of in your workplace or in the school, especially if you're in the secular university. You're one of those Christians. Classmate comes up to you, a fellow employee, or in this case, maybe it would be the, the one who's cleaning the facilities. Are, are you one of them? And you're so fearful about suffering with well, the stigma. That, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about. That's what Peter does. He, he plays it off like he doesn't even hear a question. He responds, and, uh, and he said, uh, verse 70, I, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> it's pretty clear what, what she said. <laughs> Maybe you've done that before. You don't want to answer somebody. I don't know what you're talking about, and you just move on. That's Peter right now. I have no idea what you're talking about. Peter, in his own strength, cannot confess Jesus. And neither can you and me. Now he's quickly running further away. This is what happens. When you keep a so-called safe distance, guess what? You keep going. You, you've cut loose from the anchor. You're no longer in grip of the rock. Now you're standing on sifting sand, and it just keeps moving. And so does Peter. And so we see, verse 71, and he went out to the entrance. Now he's trying to get out, Right? Oh no, I've been found. Now I'm trying to back out. Play it cool, play it cool, play it cool. Let's go. You know, that's what he's doing. And another servant girl comes. And she says to the crowd, not even to Peter, because Peter clearly looks like he's heading out. And she said, that, that one was with Jesus of Nazareth. Oh no, I'm outed. They found me. And now, second time Peter denies it, but he ups it. And he now says an oath. I do not know the man. I swear to God I don't know this man. Now what's interesting about Peter or Jesus' sayings on oaths in the Sermon on the Mount? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't take an oath. The only people taking oaths here is Caiaphas and now Peter. The only one speaking the truth is Jesus. And left to ourselves, not in dependence on Christ, we'll find ourselves, guess what? In order to preserve our lives, we'll start sinning as we drift. This leads to his third denial. Now his accent just gives him away. He's talking too much. And they know he's got that hick accent from Galilee. These are city people. Where are you from? What kind of accent is that? Well, we know Jesus had the same accent. And so Jesus, so Peter's now desperate. So much so now he ups it up even more. He curses and swears. I don't know the man. 
you ever found yourself having drifted further than you ever dreamt? Peter does. Just a matter of hours. He's far. He's far. Bro, moment. Jesus' words ring in his ear because he hears the rooster crow. And the conviction's upon him and he just runs out and he weeps bitterly. Good news is that he, his, his weeping led him to repentance. And he knows, I must stay close to Jesus. I need to stay close to Jesus so I don't follow my own way of thinking. I follow Jesus's. I must stay close to Jesus so that I can confess him in the moment. I cannot do it on my own. Brothers and sisters, it's when you're close to Jesus and following Jesus in close communion with him that you, you'll be able to confess him, whether that's to the employee in the cubicle next to you, says, you know, I've seen your Facebook page. You, you go to church? Or the group is talking about whatever it may be, and they mockingly say, oh, you're one of those Christians, aren't you? Or even if you were to stand before a superior who holds your job, your reputation, or maybe your life in his hands, tell us, are you a Christian? Because you've stayed close to Jesus, you'll be able to make the good confession in the time of trouble. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to continue to make that confession. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And it's a means of grace by which we remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us and how all our failures have been washed, haven't they? And we're coming again, and together we're confessing him as our Lord, right? And doing so, declaring his death until he comes. And as a reminder that just what we declare in here, we want to declare in the world. And so I'm going to pray the Lord would give us strength, not in ourselves, but in the grace he supplies through faith in Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Father, we, we do not stand before you on our own strength, on our own wisdom. There's nothing that we can boast in, but we come in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior who is now exalted, who has been given the name above every name, which at the mouth of Jesus, every tongue could, must confess that he is Lord and every knee will bow. We now come and we bow before you and we confess that you are our Lord. Lord, I pray for all of us that, Lord, you would bind our heart like a fetter to you. Keep it from wandering from you. Let us stay close to you by faith, remembering your promises, remembering your love, that you have sent your son to atone for our sins, to die, to bear the judgment. And for anyone who's in Christ, there is now no condemnation. Let us be reminded of those truths. and Let us stay close to Jesus, following in his footsteps so that we may not deny you before men, but we would boldly profess you and call others
to come to know you. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.